Hello folks, Bill Michalek here. This is one of those rare episodes that calls for me to have a short chat with you, the listener, before we get started. This month, we're bringing you a rare two-part episode. And while it's usually Steve's fault when an episode goes long, this time around, I take full responsibility. It was my month to do the research, and some recent events, which I'll get into in the episode, led me to tackle a topic that's near and dear to my heart, bird banding. You may have heard us mention banding in a past episode, and it's a topic we've been meaning to cover ever since we started the podcast. Well, this is it, and I just couldn't contain myself when it came to what to talk about. I foolishly thought I could get it all out in less than an hour, but once we got out into the field to record, it became obvious that this would need to be a two-parter. So, this first part is all about the process of bird banding, giving you some history and a spotlight on the tools and the techniques. If you're already familiar with bird banding, you may want to skip ahead to part two, where we cover recent research that answers the question, just how safe is bird banding for the birds involved? Also, I need to apologize in advance for the wind noise. I promise you only have to suffer through it for short periods during the episode. So, here we go, with part one of Put a Ring on It, all about bird banding. Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Steve. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the idea of what it's like to be out in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, take you out to the field, and share with you everything we learned. But today, as uh, per usual, or I should say, as what we've been doing lately, Bill is going to be leading this episode. But before we do that, how's your summer going? I think it's all right. I've actually, I've been doing a lot of research this summer and things have finally started to show results. So that's really exciting. I understand that you've been house sitting though. Yes. Yes, and I'd actually considered earlier this week calling up Rich and trying to figure out where you are, maybe calling up Lynn and asking her and then going and uh, knocking on windows in the middle of the night or (laughs) trying to do a little research on Steve's flight or flight response. (laughs) That would be terrifying. By the way, I thought I heard that last night. I could have swore I heard someone knocking on the window, but... It wasn't me. We didn't do it. I just assumed it was my imagination. Or it was actually a prowler. Yeah, right. (laughs) All right. Well, today's episode, it's something that we'd been talking about for a while, but two incidents prompted me to actually do some research. So I have the summer off. I'm a teacher for any new listeners out there. That leaves me with a lot of time to get sucked into Facebook. Oh, unfortunately. Right. (laughs) I find that every time I get into a point in my life where I have more free time, it just gets eaten up by something that (laughs) is a complete waste. Exactly. So for anyone that's involved in Facebook groups or online groups that deal with raising monarch butterflies, a study was recently released and we're recording this in July of 2019. And a study was recently released where some researchers took some monarch caterpillars. And I told you about this the last time we went for a hike, right? Right, because yeah. Matt wrote about it too, right? That's right, on, yeah. in defense of plants. These researchers got some monarchs from a breeder. These weren't wild raised monarch caterpillars. And they reared these monarchs under certain conditions. And I should preface this by saying, I did not read this actual study. I'm just going off what, what other people have said. So. I'm being a little irresponsible here, but... (laughs) um, Give us that uninformed opinion, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) But what their research showed is that when they reared these caterpillars, they had trouble migrating. Mm, So they did not migrate as successfully as wild monarchs. 
And again, this is kind of the gist of the study, and, and what they were saying was that, look, our results indicate that possibly monarchs that are raised indoors, especially monarchs that are uh, caterpillars that are purchased from a breeder, may have trouble migrating. But the results did indicate that if the caterpillars or at least in certain stages of their life cycle were outside as opposed to inside, they could migrate. Mm -hmm. Well, I belong to a couple Facebook groups that are dedicated to rearing monarchs. Right. People often post things like, oh, I found this insect on my milkweed. Is this something that can hurt caterpillars? A lot of chances just to ask people questions. Well, when this article came out, the backlash against this article was <laughs> just blew me away people just calling the study absolutely flawed and garbage science and there were even articles within science journalism circles mm -hmm. that I felt did a bad job of reporting on this kind of these splashy headlines just people raising monarchs are doing harm to monarch populations overblowing the what the researchers were actually saying but there were many comments especially one from a moderator of a group that basically said I don't like what this study says so I'm not going to allow us to talk about it on the site anymore. Oh, weird. Which greatly concerned me. Right. It's like the uh, ostrich shoving its head into the ground, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Is that real? I don't believe so. Okay. <laughs> I, I played a video game when I was a kid where, where one of the enemies was an ostrich. And uh, that's when you could kill them is when they put their head <laughs> in the ground. <laughs> if that is true, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> but on the heels of that, as you know, we started our bird banding season. Yeah. Folks, oh, right. We did. <laughs> well, I did. Steve has failed to uh, show up at any of our bird banding I, I have been a very sessions. bad bird bander this, uh, this summer. But I've been taking care of dogs. It's so hard to get it somewhere at 5 in the morning yeah, or 6 yeah, in the morning yeah. when you have two sets of animals to take care of. Folks, anybody that's listened to the podcast regularly knows we, we mention bird banding now and again. And we're involved in a, a bird banding operation out at a nature, local nature center. And I got to talking to some of our volunteers about whether bird banding is harmful or not. Oh, yeah. Now, folks, at this point, I'm going to say if you don't know about bird banding or if you're curious about uh, one of the, what one of the field guides looks like, I want you to pause the podcast and go to this website. All one word, birdsontheniagarafrontier.org. And on that website, they have a video for each month, a short video for each month of the year one was recorded with me in October of last year. Yeah. And it basically focuses on the basics of bird banding. It takes you through the process. This was a project run by a retired professor here in Western New York, Mike Noonan, do you know him? No. So he was based at Canisius College uh, in Buffalo. And he did a lot of great work with undergrads. Uh, there was a program he did called uh, Ambassadors of, for Conservation. I'm probably getting the name wrong, but it was something like that, where he would work with students, they would focus on a particular environmental problem, and then he would take the students to those locations, be it in the Amazon or in Africa. Wow. And they would look at how these problems were being addressed, and then he would, the undergrads would come back, and he would work with them to become educators about these issues. Wow. Yes. Uh, that place has money, <laughs> if he can do that. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, he's done some great work, he's retired now, and he spent the last year or two filming these short video segments uh, with people in the birding community about different topics and issues about birds in western New York. Go visit that website, it'll give you a good background on bird banding, and Jerry Rising is the one who interviews me on camera. 
And you know what? It might be a good idea for you to go check that out, maybe even pausing the podcast, because I think that's the topic of this episode. I don't know if you exactly. said it outright, I did not but... say it yet. <laughs> so during the filming of that, I said something to the effect of, as far as we can tell, Oop, what'd you find? I think it's either a Maiden Pink or a Deptford Pink. I always... Oh. Uh, you know what? I'm pretty positive this is a Deptford Pink. I agree, because I actually just keyed this out last week. Oh, really? <laughs> it has these opposite skinny leaves mm-hmm. down the stem. Yeah, yeah, actually, I had just misidentified one a few weeks ago, and uh, someone was nice enough on Instagram to correct me. <laughs> um, but I'm glad I actually am now seeing a, a Deptford pink, because the pinks, at least those two specific species, the Maiden and, and the Deptford pinks, those are some of my favorite species easily. They're so brightly colored yeah. to the point where if you try to take a picture with your camera, it's it doesn't really come out that great. It fails to capture the intensity of the pink. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, folks, we have about a half inch wide blossom here with five, right? One, yep. two, three, four, five bright pink petals. And they have these little dots all over them. That's and right. The, the vividness is so high <laughs> that it'll just like short circuit your camera. Yeah. And those little white dots, you can't see it unless you get pretty close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Sorry for that distraction, but I'm just seeing all these things around me that I either neglected this summer so far or I just haven't come across yet. And I, we're just seeing all this, what is that called? A, a water shield or? Oh yeah, on the surface of the yeah. water. Hang on, let's... Bronzia or something? Let's pause for a moment and tell people where we are. Sorry, Bill. <laughs> I, I feel like I don't get outside enough anymore. <laughs> and we're walking past all this great stuff. So we are at Rheinstein Woods, and you guys might recognize Rheinstein Woods from previous episodes, like our Witch Hazel episode. Yep, and our Leaf Colors episode. And the Leaf Color, and the episode that Bill did without me. That's right, uh, Deer, Deer Exclosures. Yeah, the Deer yeah. Exclosure episode. So this is a uh, suburban nature preserve. We're about 20, 25 minutes uh, southeast of Buffalo. And this is a, a state nature preserve. If you ever find yourself in the Buffalo area, check out Rheinstein Woods. They have lots of uh, great nature programs going on during the week and on the weekend as well. But it's and, pretty quiet today. Yeah, but but there are some really nice trails here, so you don't really have to worry about going off trail too much. But if you're like Bill or myself, you're, you're probably going to end up off trail a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, always just come prepared. Be wary of, of anything that could be out here. Think, <laughs> Poison ivy, ticks, things like that. I think they do frown on going off trail here. <laughs> I mean, don't go off trail. But if you have a, an addiction like Bill or myself, and you know you wouldn't be able to help it, <laughs> even though it's wrong. <laughs> so one of the, the features of this woods is the the person who owned this previously dr victor reinstein he put in a crazy amount of ponds so the trails you often find yourself walking by uh some sort of wetland and here we have a fairly open pond and it is covered in i think what is water shield I think yeah you're right. it's yeah. a really it, it almost looks like what you guys would think a lily pad would be but it's smaller and it's more like football shaped right football shaped and the stem attaches in the center of the floating leaves. Yes. And if you... It's really slimy, isn't it? That's right. If you touch them underneath, they have a coating of slime on the underside of the leaf. Really, really cool one. In fact, it makes me want to so badly go back to uh, the Adirondacks and and do another kayaking trip. Makes you always think of the the Adirondacks. Okay, I guess back to the actual episode. But it's always good to take in our surroundings a little bit. Yeah. I feel like we neglect that too often. Yeah. So when Mike and and Jerry Rising, when we were recording that uh, video clip, I made some kind of comment that, as far as we can tell, bands don't harm birds. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of an offhanded comment. I always like to address that. And it may not have been as accurate as it should have been. And then in the the weeks that followed, when Mike and Jerry were sending me drafts of the video clip, 
Mike mentioned in one of his emails that, oh, by the way, there has been some research that indicates banding does cause some harm. Oh. So I emailed Mike right back and said, hey, by the way, if you could send me any of those studies, that would be great. And Mike emailed me back and said, oh, I, I don't remember what the official studies are. I just know that I've come across them. Yeah. So I brought this up with some of the volunteers at one of our banding sessions. And one of the volunteers actually looked up several studies and forwarded them on to me. So those two incidents, the crazy reporting and reaction of the, the Monarch study, and then this discussion about bird banding and its safety, led me to today's topic. So we are gonna be talking about a quick overview of bird banding, what it's all about. And again, I recommend people go check out the video at birdsontheniagarafrontier.org. And we'll put a link in the description. Right, the video for the month of October on that site. And then we're gonna look at several studies that look at is bird banding safe or not? Or how safe is it, I should say. So let's talk about first, just a basic definition of bird banding. So have you ever heard of bird banding referred to as bird ringing? No, that's my first time. Really? Yeah, I've never heard that. We call it bird banding here in the US and apparently they also do in Australia, but in UK and in some other parts of Europe, they call it bird ringing. Hmm. So when people say this, they really just mean it's the attachment of a small individually numbered metal or plastic tag to the leg or the wing of a wild bird. And obviously that's, obviously that's to identify it and it helps in keeping track of the movements of the bird and its life history. Now, I've never heard of a plastic band. Oh, we're going to get into it. Okay, because I was going to say, uh, just in terms of my background, both you and I, you know, for about a de well, at least me, for about a decade now, we've been banding birds the years that I show up. And uh, when I was living in Utah, we did a lot of hummingbird banding, and all the bands were always the same. The hummingbird bands obviously were a lot smaller, but right. still made out of the same material, like a really, I have to imagine, like, what is it made out of, tin or something? Aluminum. <laughs> Aluminum, okay. Yeah or an aluminum alloy. So during capture, banders will attach a tag, usually take measurements, they examine feather molt, fat, uh, age indications, and they try to sex the bird. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully, you're gonna subsequently recapture or recover the bird if it dies. And this can provide tons of information on migration, longevity, things like mortality, population, territoriality, feeding behavior, uh, all the stuff that researchers wanna look at. So, the term bird banding or bird ringing can include many methods of marking birds, not just putting a metal band like we do on their leg. Oh. So when people yeah. use that term, it gets tossed around a lot and it can mean a variety of methods for tagging animals or birds, I should say. So what about this? When I was tagging raptors, we were doing a short-eared owl study. Mm -hmm. We like attached a backpack onto the owl. Would that, because we used it for radio telemetry. Yep. Um, would that technically, could I, could I say we were ringing short-eared owls? Technically you could, you could, we're in the US, so you'd want to say banding. Oh, right, sure. <laughs> Otherwise you'd sound pretentious. But, <laughs> but I don't think most people would refer to that as bird banding. Okay, so, so that's, that's far enough away that it's not going to be in the same category. Right, it could be included under that term, but I don't think most people that do that, if you called it bird banding, that would make much sense to them. Yeah, and I just want to say for anyone that doesn't know what radio telemetry is, after you band a bird with that, you stand out in a field and you basically, you're holding like an antenna. Yep. <laughs> and you just follow where the antenna is telling you the beeps are coming from. It puts you in a direction. You write all the, that information down 
and you basically know where the birds are roosting without really having to closely interact with them. Right, so radio telemetry, along with other forms of banding or tagging birds, besides that little metal band, these other methods, they're really designed for you to be able to locate the bird without having to capture it again. Yeah. Right? So, so, so whether it's like satellite data or, right. or radio telemetry. And remember when we were in Algonquin, uh, Algonquin Provincial Park folks, where we recorded our spruce grouse episode. Oh yeah. They were banding gray jays there, but they put a series of colored bands on the legs. Yes. So you could just mm -hmm. see the bird and from the arrangement of those colored bands, you could identify which bird that was. Yep. So that way they didn't need to capture them again. And we're gonna get into that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to compare that type of banding to just putting a metal band on the bird. Mm -hmm. But let's back up and talk about, you know, people originally started banding birds or marking birds because they wanted to figure out what was going on. Because for a long time, people did not understand migration, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> so tell me you're going to go into this. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> How could I not, right? <laughs> yeah. It's one of the funniest things in natural history. That's right. I mean, looking back on it, it's the, one of the funniest things. Right. It's, it's always fun to look back on people in history and make fun of them, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's way more safe making fun of dead people than it is making fun of alive people. <laughs> We're not being serious. <laughs> so some former theories of hibernation held that birds turned into mice. I'd never heard of that Whoa, one. Whoa, that's new to me. <laughs> yeah. Or that they hibernated. That was the big one. Okay. Um, that's the one I heard, but I heard that they did it like underwater or something. That's right. Aristotle even believed that swallows hibernated in the clay at the bottom of rivers. Mm -hmm. Some people thought they hibernated in the bottom of the sea. This was all the way back in the fourth century. Right. But this belief persisted even into the 1800s. Holy cow. Yeah. Even zoologists at the time, people that studied animals and biology, they propagated these theories. It was, it was the best they had at the time. Right. I mean, th there wasn't really much of a scientific theory. It wasn't like the modern age of science back then. Right. So. People were just kind of throwing out ideas. Uh, right. There was, it made me think of the belief back then of spontaneous, was it called spontaneous generation? Yeah, or, I think that's right. How animals would just spring up from mm -hmm. inanimate things like... People believed back then that when something died, maggots just developed from dead flesh. Yeah. That nothing laid an egg, that that's where maggots came from. Right. And it's so weird to think that it took so long <laughs> for people to decide to start testing things. Right. Like, it's, it seems so obvious today, but, you know, I say that, but there's so many people that, that still use those same methods where they think if they thought about something enough and had enough interesting ideas in their head that means it's probably true <laughs> they've convinced themselves that without testing oh, yeah. it it's probably right and you see that a lot today but like that was the standard in the day right and uh, i mean it's hardly not the standard now but at least we have scientists doing hard work so <laughs> now I, I will say though that when i actually went back and looked at what people believed about migration it wasn't as cut and dry and, and funny as we've just been making it out because there is evidence that even Pacific Islanders, as far as 3,000 years ago, understood some elements of migration. Hmm. In some Samoan traditions, there's stories that refer to long distance movements of the Pacific Golden Plover. So they mm -hmm. understood that birds could travel long distances. Um, records of bird migration were also known in Europe from at least 3,000 years ago because Homer, Herodotus, and even Aristotle did understand that some birds migrated. 
Oh, okay. And bird migration is referenced in the Bible as well. And if it's in the Bible, then you know it's true. Uh, okay. <laughs> Cutting that from the podcast. <laughs> so Aristotle, however, he did suggest that swallows and some other birds hibernated. So it was kind of a species-specific behavior in his mind. Yeah. And as I said, this belief persisted as late as 1878 when someone did a listing of papers dealing with the hibernation of swallows and that they're hibernating underwater usually. And at that time, 1878, this listing found 182 papers at that time referencing that. Wow. So it was pretty commonly held at that time. And to back it up a little bit, in the 17th century, the 1600s, there was an English minister and scientist named Charles Morton, and he wrote a surprisingly well-reasoned treatise claiming that birds migrate to the moon and back every year. I mean, disprove it, man. So <laughs> I loved his rationale because he refuted the position that birds make their way into clay by saying, hello, there's no air down there. How are they going to survive? Yeah. Uh, not to mention the cold temperatures. So he said, obviously, since no one has seen where these birds go, they must be leaving Earth. And Wait, they... so, and this wasn't, this was real. It wasn't like, um, he's not a troll? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the 16th century. So he's not making fun of everyone else. No. Uh, this isn't, uh, yeah, weird. He reasoned, why else then? Would sailors way out in the middle of the ocean report a woodcock flying in to land on their ship? Not from the horizon, but from right down above. It must be coming from the moon. <laughs> That's so funny. A nice <laughs> shout out to the woodcock episode. That's right. <laughs> now, anyone that follows us on Facebook, they might have seen that back in June or early July, 2019 again is when we're recording this, I posted an article about, I'm going to try to say this correctly, the Rostocker Flaustork. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> For all I know, that was fine. I don't know. <laughs> so this type of bird was crucial to Europeans kind of getting a handle on migration. So the Rostocker Flaustork, German, uh, <laughs> proved that birds migrate long distances to wintering grounds because this was a, a white stork that was found in 1822 near a German village. And it had either an arrow or a spear through its neck and this arrow or spear depends on which article you're reading right was from central africa okay and people at the time were able to figure that out over the the, the course of time there were 24 or 25 of these birds found wow people were able to use this as proof as hey these birds are obviously going to africa and coming back i think it's spontaneous generation <laughs> of spears <laughs> if only you had been alive then so, <laughs> so folks if you get the chance look online for the Rostocker file stork. It's a... okay, link in the description because no one's going to be able to find that. <laughs> but it's it's an amazing story. I, when I posted it, I said, how have I never heard about this before? Yeah, that's Just, amazing. It, you can see this white stork stuffed with this weapon protruding through its neck. Oh, we should go to Beaver Meadow. If they have a stork there, we should put a spear through it. <laughs> Sorry, not a, a living stork, guys. Right. <laughs> so they have a lot of animals a stuffed, one. Uh, stuffed all over their nature center. Yeah, so they have lots of mouths. That would be hilarious, but I think we could also maybe get arrested or something. I do have a key. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so here in North America, John James Audubon and Ernest Thompson Seton, two famous guys that studied birds, mm -hmm. they pioneered methods for marking birds here. Now, in order to determine if the same bird would return to his farm, Audubon tied silver threads onto the legs of young eastern Phoebes. This oh. was around 1805. The, the date's kind of hard to pin down. Mm -hmm. 
And then in 1882, Ernest Thompson Seton, he marked snow buntings in Manitoba with ink. So just marking these birds, trying to mark them as individuals, so if they return, he could identify them. Something that would never just happen on its own. Right. The ink and the string. Yeah. yeah. And then banding of birds for more scientific, more extensive scientific purposes. That was started in 1899 by a guy with a great name, Hans Christian Cornelius Mortensen. Wow. <laughs> he was a Danish school teacher and he used aluminum rings on European starlings. So he had tried using zinc rings, uh, but he found that those were too heavy. He'd release the birds and then they'd immediately fall onto the ground. Oh uh, man, <laughs> such a sad thing to imagine. I don't know if that actually happened, but that's right. what I imagine anyway. So the Smithsonian uh, is credited with the first modern banding in the U.S. That was in 1902, so a little over 100 years ago. And then the American Bird Banding Association was founded in 1909. And this established the federal programs in 1920 uh, and then in Canada in 1923. These happened because of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. That really protected most of our migratory bird species, mostly due to the plume hunting that was going on then. Right. So I don't know if we talked about that before. Yeah, I know a, a lot of naturalist books from that time about the Everglades are yeah. huge about that because that was uh, a lot of devastation happened down there. Right. So folks look up market hunting where people would just go out and kill as many animals as they could, uh, mostly for selling. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about some terminology and techniques. The bird banding that we do out at Beaver Meadow, we set up mist nets, and we'll talk about those in a minute. Mm -hmm. But birds can be captured uh, when they're young at the nest, or they can be captured as adults using mist nets, as I just said, or baited traps. So why don't you say what a mist net is? Because I think every time I bring that up to people who ask me they about bird banding, they have no idea. Yeah, so mist nets can come in a variety of sizes and lengths, and it's usually according to the, the size of the bird you're trying to get. Mist nets, they're made from black nylon or polyester, very thin threads. So when you put them up, the nets that we use are about 10 meters long and then about two to three meters tall. And it just looks like this fine black mist. You could walk right up to it and almost not see it if you weren't paying attention to it. And that's the idea, yeah. you don't want the birds to see it. So we use 30 millimeter mesh out at Beaver Meadow and if we were gonna ban larger things like owls, you'd wanna get a heavier net to withstand those talons. They go to 60 millimeters. Yeah, but there's a lot of other ways to catch owls, not just mist nets. Right, right. Yeah. And the mist nets usually have what we call trammels or pockets. So picture you know, a long net, like I said, going about 10 meters. Or maybe like a ship sail. Do you know how sometimes there's of... It billows out? Yeah, it billows out a bit. Yeah, and you could, so you could say there's trammels or what you might call shelves where when a bird flies into the net, it then falls down into a pocket. And yeah. most mist nets, I don't want to say all, are going to have kind of these four levels that a bird could fly into and then fall down into the pocket. Yeah, so you want the net to be taut enough, but you also want to have it to have some give so they can actually form that pocket when they when they get stuck in the right, net. Right, because otherwise it's just going to bounce off the net. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so <there's... laughs> like, like a trampoline up on its side. <laughs> so there's, there's other ways of catching birds. Have you heard of... Heligoland traps? No. These are really just big funnel nets. Some of them might be huge, like a net, you could even walk into the front of it. And it's basically a series of funnels. When I looked these up, it made me think of what some people use to catch fish. I was you gonna can... say, it sounds exactly like something that they use in, in fisheries that I had to learn about back when I was yeah. doing fisheries work. So there's also cannon nets. 
Uh, look that up on YouTube, cannon nets using to catch birds where- Oh my God, like a net gun? <laughs> well, the ones that I saw, these nets are actually huge. They might be 20, 30, 40 yards long. Wow. And there's several points at which they're shot out from. So mm -hmm. these massive nets come out over a flock of birds. Wow. And then you'll see the researchers running madly uh, <laughs> to catch the birds once, they're, uh, once, once the nets have been shot out. And then there's, for capturing raptors, there's something called Balshatri or Balkatri traps. Have you heard of these? Balshatri, yeah. Balshatri. If I remember right, that's how our friend Chuck was pronouncing it, because we actually were using those traps to catch the short-eared owls. So explain to people what those are. So we used many traps. It wasn't just the mist nets and the Balshatri traps. Okay. We used some other ones that I can't remember the names of too, but is this the one where it's kind of a dome over the ground and within the dome is like a mouse? And there's all these little loops at every like junction or every uh, crossing of the, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing of such the, a poor job. No, no, you're doing fine. Of the material, every point where there's a junction of the, the material, there's a loop that comes up, a fine loop. Yeah, so when the owl comes in to get the mouse, it gets tangled in these little loops and that's how you catch it. Yep, you got it. So when a bird is caught in one of these traps, a ring of suitable size, and again, usually made of aluminum or some other lightweight material, it's attached to the bird's leg. That's what we do, but mm -hmm. there's other ones that we're gonna get into attached to the wing or to the neck. Each one's gonna have a unique number and a contact. Now the rings are very light and they're designed, hopefully, to have no adverse effect on the bird. I mean, the whole purpose of banding is to gain data about the bird that's ringed and it should behave in all aspects in the same way as an unringed or an unbanded bird, right? Yeah, that's yeah. the hope, right? Because otherwise you're messing with your data. And then the bird that's tagged, of course, could hopefully be identified when they're retrapped or found dead, or if it's designed that way to be seen visually at some point later on. Now, when a banded bird is found, and folks, you may find a banded bird out there. Maybe it flies into a window or gets hit by a car. I found a banded bird last week. Okay, and what'd you do? Did I tell you about this? No. Okay, so I was hunting an orchid last okay. week, <laughs> and I was slogging through a wetland and it was tough. I was getting lost. I was getting scared, <laughs> sad, disappointed, let down, because I couldn't find the thing. I finally found one. I found my target species. Purple fringe? Yes, yeah. I found my purple fringed orchid, which was beautiful and incredible. But I had to get back because I'm, you know, at the time I was still watching two different dogs at two different houses. So I really had to get back and let them each out and feed them and everything. So. I saw the orchid and I just got out of there and on my way back I decided to walk the road because like the paved road that cars drive on. You did send me a picture of the bird. Did I send you a picture? I think you okay. did, yeah. Was it a so, blue jay? Nope, it was a uh, indigo bunting. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So I found an indigo bunting on my way back and I felt weird about touching a dead bird that was obviously like there was flies around it and stuff yeah. so what I did was I grabbed a leaf off of uh, I think it was like a plantain a common plantain or something and I used that to grab its foot and I was just I walked back all the way to Beaver Meadow holding this dead indigo bunting and I left it outside of our friend Tom's office <laughs> and I was like hey Tom I left you a dead indigo bunting outside your office but I'm like and normally I wouldn't do something so weird but it had a band on it so when you get a chance can you please take care of the band and report it for me that's funny because that's what I was going to tell people to do yeah you find a banded bird leave it outside Tom Kerr's <laughs> office door <laughs> he's the naturalist at Beaver Meadow he better have done it too <laughs> we'll have to find out yeah so did you happen to look at the band I did okay and 
did you see a contact on there? No, I, I did. The thing was like, it was in kind of rough shape and okay. I didn't have any gloves or anything. Yeah. So I, I wasn't really trying to get any parasites. Come on, man, in the name of science. <laughs> I see, the thing is, if I knew there was nothing that could really harm me in any right. way, I would have just gone right in there and, and read the whole band and text you the number or whatever. <laughs> but, um, but no, I decided to leave it for Tom. All He's right. a great guy, and I really hope he took care of that bird. He probably picked it right up. <laughs> so the bands that we've been using out at Beaver Meadow, I know it's been a while since you've been there. Yeah. But the bands we've been using are a little bit older. We've been using the same set probably for about five years just because the person that has our permit, they ordered so many bands to begin with. Oh, okay. That they do have the name of our federal banding lab on the band, but new bands. And hopefully, folks, if you're out there and, and you find a bird with a band on it, there's a website set up that you can go to. It's just reportband.gov. You type in the number and it'll give you the history of that band. Wow. As long as it's on record, as long as the original bander has reported that information. Mm -hmm. That's what you could have done. And I now I, I really wish that I would have done it, but I already have a really exciting one that I've done one time. So I keep bringing up that I used to help band short-eared owls. Yes, right? we know. You've mentioned it. I know, over and over again. <laughs> well, one of the other things we were doing is we were dissecting their pellets that they cough up, yep. like the, the bones and the fur and things that they don't digest. And sometimes we would find bird beaks and things like that, so we know that it, it killed a bird. It ate a bird. Oh, did you find a band? I found a band inside one of them, <laughs> and I gave it to uh, Chuck, and he ended up getting a reward for it. So he, he reported it, and that's pretty exciting, knowing that your banded bird got eaten by an owl. So you mentioned you got a reward for it. Yeah. All right. Some type of certificate, I don't know. Oh, because I didn't know this, but there are certain agencies that ban birds, and the band is known as a reward band. Like if someone finds it, oh. they can actually get money for it. That's crazy. It'll... Chuck, if you're listening right now, you owe me money. <laughs> no, I don't know if that was what Chuck got. Because it sounded from what I was reading or what I could find online that it was mostly waterfowl and people that were doing specific studies. Oh, I've never done waterfowl banding, but I've heard about it. So in order to encourage people that find these bands, they offer rewards. Wow. Okay. Because there is some belief out there, and it, and it seems to be among the waterfowl hunting community, that if you report bands, it's going to increase regulation. Okay. So there's some people out there that say, oh, if you find a band on waterfowl, don't report it. It's just going to create more regulations on hunting, and we don't want that. Oh, but that's that's so funny, though, because aren't hunters some of the earliest people that were pro-regulation? Weren't deer hunters and oh, yeah. things like that in the early 1900s? To protect them because of the market hunting, yeah. Right, because we had nearly extirpated deer from the <laughs> North America. <laughs> All right, here in the U.S., the agency that oversees bird banding, get this, is the U.S. Geological Survey. Oh. Now, have we talked about this before? USGS? Yes, the USGS. Right. I originally had in the notes I made a bunch of references to the history of the USGS and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but it really was just a convoluted way to get to the question of why is bird banding with the USGS? I could not find a de definitive answer online. Right. You would think it would be part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Right. So I'm kind of putting this question out there, folks. I tried to find online. I didn't call or email anybody. I just mm -hmm. I didn't have time to do that. But from what I can tell, there was a U.S. biological survey at one point in history. But then when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was created, it was really created more for hunting and game. Yeah, that's what I was uh, going to guess. That type of wildlife. 
And since bird banding was more research-based, it seems like it was put in the part of the biological survey that went into the USGS, okay. the geological survey. Just a weird mistake of history, it sounds <laughs> like, that they just kind of kept going with. Yeah, but if any listeners out there know the specific reason why, I, I would love to hear it. But when we order our bands and when we report our bands, it's through the U.S. Geological Survey and the Bird Banding Laboratory. Hmm. Okay. Now, before you move on, you were saying this is who you report to, but I thought you reported to MAPS. And did MAPS report to them, or do you give one set of data to MAPS and one set of data to them? Yes. When we do bird banding at Beaver Meadow, we report everything to the bird banding lab. Mm -hmm. But when we band during the summertime, as part of the MAPS study, and that stands for Mapping Avian Productivity and Survivorship. I'm so glad you know that, because I was going to guess I was going to be like, migratory avian. (laughs) And you would have been close. That's a study run by a group called the Institute for Bird Populations. Okay. And they basically say, hey, we have this study looking at breeding birds. Any bird banders out there, if you want to take part in it, here's the protocol you have to follow. Hmm. So when we band at that certain site at Beaver Meadow, that certain area of Beaver Meadow, during the breeding season, we're following MAPS protocol. We report our data to the banding lab. We have to report all our data to them, but we only report our breeding data to MAPS. Got it. Makes okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. The good news is USGS collects all this data and then it's basically a storehouse. Their researchers can access that data mm-hmm. and do projects, yep. but they also make it available to any other researcher that wants comprehensive bird banding data from across North America. Right. And then they work closely with their Canadian counterpart as well. Man, imagine how nice it would be to study birds in that way. You have all this data just waiting for you to access. I'm sure there's a lot of projects that come out of that. So let me look at the the equipment used. And I should say before I get into it that most of the information I'm presenting here is really looking at how we do bird banding in North America. Okay. All right. And especially now I'm getting into the equipment. All of North America? Yeah, because I would say Canada and the U.S. are very similar. And what about uh, Mexico? Mexico? (laughs) Yeah, I shouldn't say for sure. I did not come across in my research the governing body for bird banding in Mexico. Hmm. So the supplies that you're going to use are really determined by the size of the bird. The equipment we use starts with bird guides, and there's a specific guide. Yeah. What is it? It's Pyle. That's right. Yeah, man. So So that's the author, yeah. Right, Peter Pyle. (laughs) He's an ornithologist that compiled this massive tome it's like a bible right it's it's a i think it's a little bit bigger than your average bible for sure yeah and it has each species of north american bird and it gives information on what they look like at different times of year the molts that they go through so when we capture a bird and we're trying to figure out the age we say all right give me pile right and you flip through it saying okay at this time of year it's going to look like this if it's this old and sometimes you have to measure uh, tail feathers or wing feathers. Right. And the thing I love about Pyle, and we, I think we've even made fun of it on this podcast before, is that sometimes he's very transparent with a lot of his measurements. So yes. sometimes he'll say, if it's this species, because sometimes they're so similar, you really can't tell them apart by looking at them. But if it's this species, the wing should be between this and this. And then it says N equals 260 and we're like oh that's fine you know 260 that's the that, sample size yeah How and it's the measured. sample size yeah, yeah. Um, but then there's other times i swear <laughs> it's in there where it's like, it should ten. be this, N of 10. And I'm like, how good is that? Is, I, I, clearly there's some use to it, but like, I'm really glad he actually puts those in there. Right, and so he's very transparent about, you know, this is the information we have, but our sample size might be very small. Yeah. 
So you're also gonna, besides pile and some bird guides, you're gonna wanna have mist nets if that's what you're using to catch the birds. You want banding pliers, a leg gauge, and I'll get into the specifics of these in just a second, a wing ruler and a digital scale. But before starting a bird banding operation, you need to get a permit. Oh, right. Okay. And, and, and you do not have a permit. I do not. I'm yeah. a sub-permittee under someone else. Yeah. So you have to get that permit through the banding lab. And that's actually necessary to purchase some of the equipment. Like, I can't order mist nets oh, wow. without giving them my permit number because they don't want just anybody throwing up a net in their backyard right. and catching birds. In the U.S., a bander has to apply to the federal bird banding lab and, in most states, to your state conservation or wildlife agency. And while doing this podcast, I thought, boy, I don't remember us ever applying to the New York State DEC. <laughs> but when I looked up, yes, we did. I was going to say, I feel like we have enough friends that yeah. like that would not go unnoticed. <laughs> right. So federal permits now, they used to be, I don't want to say easy about handing them out, but it definitely used to be easier to get a permit. Mm -hmm. So they used to hand out site permits. Beaver Meadow at one time did just have a site permit, oh, okay. and anybody could band there at Beaver Meadow. That sounds dangerous. Right. Yeah. So they've gotten rid of those. And now in order to get a permit, you have to have at least three references. You have to have some sort of associated study or project. You can't just say, I want a bird banding permit just because I, I want to ban birds for the heck of it. Oh. You have to have some kind of research that you're doing. So what's... When we're doing maps. Okay. I was going to say, yep. your, yours is maps then. And then the permit only lasts now for three years. It used to be much longer. Okay. So we already talked about mist nets. When we talk about bands, there's actually three kinds of bands. We only use, for our purposes, because we only are capturing passerines, small right. birds. Anything from a wren all the way up to like a blue jay. Right, because I remember when I was in Utah banding hummingbirds, we used, it was made of the same material. It's still aluminum, but they were definitely different. Right, and you have, to much have, smaller. you have to have a special permit to band hummingbirds. Yes, I don't think they actually had a passerine license. They only had the hummingbird license. Oh, okay, yeah. Because that's all we did. I can't band a hummingbird. If we catch one yeah. in the net, I have to let it go. Our permit holder does have a hummingbird permit. Oh, so that's super interesting. Yeah. But that, you're not sub-permitted under that. No, no, because yeah. you have to go through the training. Got it. So we use the bands that are called butt-end bands, which are thin strips of metal, and you use these special pliers. The pliers have a post on them that you slip the band onto, mm -hmm. and then when you open the pliers, that post splits and spreads the band open. Right. And then you take the band, put it into the end of the pliers, and squeeze it so it closes around the bird's leg. Now, I do have a quick question about that, and this is the smallest detail, yeah. but the big difference that I remember between what you guys do at Beaver Meadow and what I was doing with hummingbirds was we had to make our bands every single week. Right. Did you guys, you pre-made all those bands, like uh, hundreds of them all no, at No, the or? bands, when you order them, the, the bands for passerines, they come on a string. Oh, ours were not. We had to we had to shape ours. We had a special tool right. that it would actually it had a, like a little what'd you call it like a, just a little post. Yeah. And then we'd have these like two arms that would wrap around the post and that would shape the band into the right shape and it would just leave it open just a little bit so we could slip it around the mm -hmm. bird's leg. Yeah. So our bands for passerines they come all on a string. Oh, that's nice. So first we have to take them off the string, slip them on the post, open them, and then put them onto the bird. Now, for medium to large birds, like birds of prey, you're going to have what's called a lock-on band. The band is like a normal butt-end band, but it has two unequal flanges. So there's the longer one, uh, and that is folded over the shorter flange 
and that locks the man in place. Right, it probably clicks into place or something. If, uh, I, if I'm, am I picturing that? No? Well, I don't know if it clicks into place, but you're really just bending it over oh. to hold it in place. Okay. And this is made of relatively soft aluminum, and it can be removed by the bander, but not by the bird. And then for larger birds like eagles, you're going to have what are called rivet bands, and that's just like it sounds. They have two long flanges of equal length with a hole in them, and you put a rivet through them. Oh, okay. So obviously the bigger the bird, you're going to need something stronger. So we talked a little bit about the pliers. Those come in different sizes depending on your band. You have a leg gauge. We use that out at Beaver Meadow. So mm -hmm. picture a rectangle of, of thick plastic, and then all around the outside of that rectangle, there's these small indents, and that's actually meant for you to take the bird's leg and slide it into the indent and right. see, okay, which slot does it fit easily into? And then it'll give you the size at the base of that little right. slot. It's kind of like, almost like a comb. You're just fitting the, the legs between the bristles or whatever, right. the teeth you, of the comb. Yeah. Obviously you don't want it too tight because that's gonna hurt the bird's leg and you don't want it too loose because then it could fall off. And then you also have a digital scale because obviously you're gonna to wanna to weigh the bird. And think about this folks, how are you gonna get the bird on the scale? I wanted to bring this up because I posted a couple bird banding pictures recently on Instagram and I saw someone with a bird in a cup, like yep. a little Dixie cup. I've never seen that because what we do is we put them in a little like stocking, like a right. pantyhose or something. Right. I don't know. Like a stocking you would have at a true store. Yeah. And that's how we do it because if they're like kind of snuggled in tight, they're not going to be able to get away but I never imagined putting them in a cup. Right. <laughs> and obviously the scale has to, you have to zero out the scale with the weight of the cup or zero out the scale with the weight of the stocking or whatever. But but yeah, I've never seen that. We should start using the cup, unless you've been using it this year. I <laughs> no, want to see it. <laughs> we've only used the stocking, but I've banded probably, I don't know, two or three different sites. And I've seen different methods at each one. So mm -hmm. we use the stocking. I saw another one that they use brown paper bags. Oh where hmm. they put the bag on, zero it out, and then they put the bird into the bag. Yeah. I've seen cans. Cans, Cans, okay. like a uh, concentrated orange juice can. Interesting. So they just put the bird in there head first so the bird can't get out. <laughs> and then I've seen all, people also use a spring scale. Well, they'll use mm -hmm. a, a bird banding bag, and they'll just hang the bird off of it. I've definitely heard of that, too. Yeah. And then the last piece of equipment you usually use is a wing ruler because you're going to measure the, the what we call the wing cord, the length from the shoulder to the tip of the wing. Which is harder than it sounds. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, it took me a long time to get good at it. But I think like after the first year that I learned, it, I got much better at it. Oh, it takes practice. Oh, yeah. It's like anything. But it's one of those things, it's like riding a bike. It just feels really comfortable after a while, right. I think. Now, those definitely are not the only tools you're going to use, and, and we do use some other tools, but those are kind of the basics. Wait, like the electronic caliper thing? Right. <laughs> For measuring the tarsus or part of the foot. Of Why the don't you talk about the... Are you going to bring up the tarsus? You are telling me about like a meeting that you guys went to, or... Oh, so the, the tarsus, folks, when you think of a bird's leg, what you think of the bird's foot, the part that's actually in contact with the ground, those are really just the toes. But then if you go up the leg from that, that first section heading backward from the toes, the, the kind that goes up from the ground to the first joint, what you would, might refer to as the knee. It doesn't it seem like the bird's leg bends the wrong way? Yes. But it's not really bending the, right, the wrong way because if we were on our tippy toes, it's kind of like it, how it is. Right. right so yeah. birds are actually standing on their toes. Yeah. And then the tarsus is the back end of the foot. Mm -hmm. the part that sticks up from the toes and goes to that first joint that looks like a backwards knee. So part of banding, depending on who's doing the banding, they may want that tarsus measurement. Mm -hmm. So you kind of fold over the toes and you use the calipers to measure it. But it's notoriously subjective. Uh, I went to a, a bird banding meeting where someone handed around a study skin and had experienced banders <laughs> measure the tarsus. 
and the range was concerning. <laughs> the range of measurements you got. So yeah, I, what I've always been told um, by people who I've been out in the field doing studies with is that even if you're doing it wrong, do it consistent. Right. <laughs> so don't switch up the way you do it halfway through. Do it consistently <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> then if some, maybe sometime in the future, they figure out a way to correct that, yeah. <laughs> then maybe, uh, maybe they can fix all your data. And when I was taught, the person that was teaching me basically said, if everyone's within 0.1 or 0.2 mm-hmm. millimeters, then that sounds it's okay. Right. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. But that leads to what I was going to cover next was limitations. Mm-hmm. Now, there are certain bird species that, for various reasons, are unsuitable to band. So some birds have extremely small legs. Also, like cardinals, because they bite really hard. <laughs> Chickadees get tied up in the net real bad. But uh, you could still ban them. <laughs> I don't want to ban them. But. <laughs> but there are birds. There's a bird called an Indian peafowl that actually has spurs on its legs. Oh, So like that a, can be difficult to ban. It's a peacock, right? Or not? Oh, I don't know. Because I thought peafowls were peacocks maybe yeah i don't know and then there's birds like flamingos or the largest swans that they're extremely difficult to ban because it's costly to make a band which is capable of securely fitting over their very strong heavy legs yeah okay. they're modern day dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> right you don't want to really want to mess with a no. swan <laughs> and then you have parrots with you know their beaks are so strong yeah. that would require very specialized bands now looking this up in uh, in one article it said the ability to overcome this problem, these, these birds with powerful bills and claws, varies between species. And with some birds, such as the gang-gang cockatoo, it's known to be too dangerous to attempt banding them. Oh, no. So I'm like, what does that mean? So I looked yeah. up the gang-gang cockatoo. Now, the cockatoo is not, the gang-gang cockatoo is not a huge bird. Does it have that tomial tooth like falcons have or something? Do they have really sharp? I, it just looked like a cockatoo. It actually looked more like a cockatiel, which is kind of a smaller version. Don't they have like almost like a parrot-like beak? They do. Okay. But I could find no reference other than the one I just mentioned in that article to why gang-gang cockatoos would be so dangerous. <laughs> There's lots of references to them as like pets. <laughs> right. So I don't know if this was just a mistake, but if anyone out there knows why, why... Why, why? <laughs> why, why, gang, gang, yes. <laughs> Might be dangerous. I'm dying to know because it was just this dead end. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Um, do you know why vultures? It's just someone with like a beloved pet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real jerk. Yeah. <laughs> they were found dead with the gang, gang, like, cockatoo. I'm, <laughs> I'm not getting anywhere near that thing. <laughs> so do you know why vultures are difficult to band? All I could tell you is that Personally, I wouldn't want to be within 15 feet of a vulture because I feel like it would throw up all over me. Well, they urinate on their legs. Okay. Right? Yeah. To kill mm-hmm. parasites because they're right. always standing in dead stuff. So that's obviously very corrosive to any bands that, that you might try to put on their legs. Now, there's also a species of bird called a dipper. Oh, I love the dipper. Yeah. So it's actually a group of birds. Yeah. Here in North America, you're going to find them in the Rocky Mountain West. Yeah. That's where I saw mine. Yeah, so these guys, they're unique to passerines because they can dive and swim underwater. That's where they do a lot of their hunting. Yes, I've only ever seen one in a creek bed, and that's where it was doing its signature dipping movement. So putting a band on these birds would increase drag, so it would make it difficult for them to catch prey in fast flowing water. You know, not that I think they'd be like diving through beds of seaweed, but couldn't you imagine maybe something getting snagged? Because, like, we close the bands decently around the leg, so there's no hard edges of the band to catch on anything. But you can imagine maybe, 
you know, because seaweed is going to be different than like a maple leaf. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. A lot more grippy. I yeah. Guess. Right. <laughs> Lack of a better term. All right. Besides the metal bands that we put on, mm -hmm. I want to talk about similar, what they call banding schemes. So other ways of tagging birds. Okay. So you've heard of wing tags. Yes. So that can be putting a tag around the wing or actually through the wing. Mm -hmm. There's one called a, a patagial tag. So if you if a bird stretches out its wing, that first part of the wing connecting the neck to the shoulder, yeah, that's called the patagium. Oh. The patagium, and remember we did the flying squirrel episode? They talked about the skin, the flap of skin. Uh. It was also called the patagium or patagium. Oh, okay, okay. okay. Uh -huh. Sometimes they actually put a band right through that oh, to hold like it on. piercing. There. Yeah, so wow. they actually pierce the wing. There's something called imping, where I've never heard of this, a brightly Sounds colored... something medieval that you wouldn't <laughs> ever want to see. They, they take a brightly colored false feather and insert it into the wing. Oh. It's easily seen from a distance. I've okay. never heard about that. And then there's obviously also radio transmitters and satellite tracking that you can right. use if you have the money to do that. Mm -hmm. There's also what are called field-readable rings. We made reference to this before. Yeah, like those colored bands, the multiple colored bands. They're usually made of brightly colored plastic. And some of them, especially on bigger birds, they might be big enough to have conspicuous markings, letters or numbers that you can see from a distance. Mm. So for small species, they can be identified by a combination of the rings, which we made reference to. They have to be read in a specific order. And this type of marking is usually considered temporary because the rings <laughs> degrade, fade, and then they're gonna be lost or removed by the bird often. Birds marked in this way are usually also fitted with a metal ring oh, okay. like we put on. There's also things called nasal discs or nasal saddles, which are these plastic things, often on waterfowl, mm -hmm. that go on or through the nose holes in a bird. So, and it looks pretty medieval when you uh, see pictures yeah. of it, but again, they can be seen from a distance. And I know, that one and the imping and the, the piercing on the patagium, all those sound like they make me feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Like some, some feeling goes through my body when I think of those. But I think that one reason that they do this, it's so they don't have to recapture these birds, cause them more stress. Right. They're often used for waterfowl because like you said, if they're moving through ponds, um, slow moving water, there can be a lot of things for the bands to catch on. Mm -hmm. um, so these are usually held up and out of the water. Yeah. And also piercings are pretty cool. So <laughs> they probably get it. Everybody's got them now. <laughs> now, we've done a really basic overview of bird banding. Now I wanted to get into some studies about, is it safe? Yeah. Are birds actually injured? Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed part one. Now that you know the background on banding, check out part two to find out what we discovered when we looked into research focused on banding and how safe it is for the birds involved. And as always, thanks for listening.